I'm continuing to reflect on some of the basic assumptions or presuppositions of the historical critical method or higher criticism as employed by non-confessing scholars. The first presupposition I noted of non-confessing scholars was that the Bible is a human creation or product, a book like any other book, not inspired by God, not having God as its ultimate source, and therefore to be read like any other book, to be criticized like any other book. The second was that Scripture is to be read from the perspective of radical suspicion. The third was that by identifying various literary forms, stylistic features, vocabulary, grammar, and historical features in a text, it is possible to accurately discover the text's original source and where the text has been uh, edited by various authors, as well as the author's real intent and meaning in writing in the first place. In the last episode, I reflected on this third assumption in light of Moses and the Pentateuch, and in particular, Wellhausen's um, uh, documentary uh, hypothesis. Here's another example of this third presupposition and how the historical critical method works or attempts to work in analyzing Scripture. This example is from the New Testament. For much of my ministerial life, I thought it unlikely that the Apostle Paul authored the, the pastoral epistles. 1st Timothy, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. Non-confessing scholars, in particular, using the historical critical method, have insisted for a long time now that the evidence that Paul was not the author of the pastoral epistles. The vocabulary is different from other letters known with some certainty to have been written by the Apostle Paul. And the sentence structure is more monotonous and less interesting uh, than uh, his uh, attested letters. In particular, there are some ecclesiastical or church terms, uh, perhaps indicating a concern for the organization of the church that may have been more common to a later date uh, than that of the Apostle Paul. Some, therefore, think the vocabulary of the pastoral epistles of First and Second Timothy and Titus is more common to second-century authors than to those of the first century. There are, it is argued, a number of words that occur in the pastorals that occur nowhere else in Paul's acknowledged letters or in the New Testament. And there are a number of characteristics, expressions, and words frequently used by Paul in his acknowledged letters that are lacking in the pastorals. In the pastorals, it is argued, there is a concern for a more elaborate church structure or organization than what seems to have existed in the first century. And there is also the pastorals' opposition to false teachers, apparently Gnostics, which would suggest a composition date later than the time of Paul. What are we to make of it? 
of all this then. In regard to the authorship of the pastorals and the date of their composition, the world-class New Testament scholar John A.T. Robinson, who was both a rather liberal theologian and a confessing Christian, said, there is nothing decisive about the vocabulary of the pastorals that uh, compelled him to conclude that they could have uh, been written in the second century. All the words in question, he said, are to be found in Greek literature by the middle of the first century. And half of them occur in the Septuagint. Uh, that's the, the translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek made um, sometime in the second to third centuries BCE, with which Paul was obviously well acquainted. I can't remember just now whether it is John A.T. Robinson in his book Redating the New Testament or in J.N.D. Kelly's uh, book, A Commentary on the Pastoral Epistles from the Thorn Apple Commentary series, who notes that uh, the literary analysis of the, of the pastorals uh, should be taken, that it should be taken into account that at their writing, Paul had been living in the West for a number of years. He, had, he um, has faced and is facing, uh, when they're written, new intellectual challenges and new questions um, and conversing a good deal, not in Greek, but in Latin. In fact, the pastorals are a different genre from Paul's other writings in which here in the pastorals he addresses new situations and new questions. For example, matters of church organization and the qualifications of ministers. Certainly, all of this would have had an impact on his vocabulary. And if Paul employed a an uh, amuensis, which is pretty much a certainty, since at one point he was um, in chains during the writing of the pastorals and unable to physically write. That fact alone, uh, that is, the use of a uh, amanuensis, uh, could have had an obvious impact, would have had an obvious impact on his style and on his vocabulary. Given the nature of writing materials in the ancient world, and how laborious and time-consuming it was to dictate, the normal process in writing letters of any length, and in writing longer letters, was, to, was in fact to engage a trusted amuensis who took not for word-for-word word word dictation, but had some freedom, some liberty to write using their own vocabulary and uh, characteristic style. Also to be taken into account is the fact that there are a number of places in which the pastorals sound uh, very much like what we would expect of Paul.
As for church organization, as it is discussed in the pastorals, uh, as for their suggesting a, a far later date than that in which the Apostle Paul could have been alive to write anything, the pastoral letters require nothing more elaborate in ecclesiastical organization than what actually existed in the synagogues of the first century and which provided the early simple organizational pattern for the church. That is, the, the, the earliest church and its organizational um, aspects uh, was very much past, uh, patterned after the ancient Jewish synagogue. And the false teachers represent nothing more uh, than the sort of proto-Gnosticism that is encountered in other books of the New Testament. There is then no need to think of it uh, in terms of the, of the fully developed, uh, the, the full-blown Gnosticism found uh, much later in the second century. Here is a fourth major presupposition. Anything that is not known to happen cannot happen. Therefore, all stories of miracles, supernatural events or occurrences that cannot be reasonably explained by common knowledge or natural law are automatically to be understood as myths, legends, fables, sagas, or metaphors, rather than as actual occurrences. Now, in sermons and talks or class, I usually pause in saying this to offer an important clarification. I do not believe that anyone has to believe every miracle story or that everything in a miracle story must be regarded as factually true in order to be a Christian. The first essential of being a Christian is wholehearted trust in Christ, complete abandonment to the love of God, to the grace of Christ, and to the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And the truth is that someone may not believe Jesus turned water to wine or walked on water, but entrust his or her life wholeheartedly to Christ and may do so more than someone who mentally assents to the actuality of both those miracles. I'm going to reflect on miracles and belief and trust later, but that's not what I'm looking at right here. What I'm, what I'm thinking about right now is the Exodus story, which is rejected by non-confessing scholars as an actual historical uh, event. Uh, uh, rejected by, again, by non-confessing scholars committed to the historical critical method. Uh, so, uh, do bushes burn without being consumed by fire? Of course not. Uh, why? The question 
is legitimately raised if the ten plagues of Egypt were real? Is there no mention of them in the records of Egypt? Am I to believe that men and women and children walked 21 miles, that's the narrowest part of the Red Sea, with water towering 600 feet above them, that's its average depth, on both sides? I, I don't think so. Philip Davies, who was a well-known secular or non-confessing, an, an, an atheist Old Testament scholar, argued that uh, literary analysis, archaeology, and reason all prove, as far as he is concerned, that there was no Egyptian slavery, no Moses, no Exodus, no conquest of Canaan, no King David, no Solomon, no Golden Age of Israel. All pure fiction written to forge a national identity. I guess kind of a, like Virgil's Romulus and Remus. Marcus Borg said the Exodus is not a historical event, but a metaphor of our desire for freedom. And the congenial Dominican priest Richard Rohr, although not a scholar, says with his typical enthusiasm and penchant for mistaken exaggeration that the Exodus is the first great metaphor of the Bible. Now, what is at stake here with the Exodus story? Is, that, is, is the very nature of Judaism and Christianity as historical religions. Uh, historical religions meaning that both justify their existence on certain events which are claimed to have occurred in time and space. With this in mind, the following observations can be made. Regarding Israel in Egypt, or what non-confessing scholars would consider its absence, Hebrew enslavement in Egypt is one of those places where, admittedly, evidence is scanty, but not entirely lacking, especially if, paradoxically, one follows the historical critical method. If the number of slaves in Egypt was relatively small, it is not surprising that their mention is not prominent. The Hebrews use use of Egyptian names like Moses, as well as a number of antiquarian details, indicates uh, a, a, a Hebrew presence. The discovery of of the of the um, of the store cities of uh, um, uh, Python and Ramses is mentioned in Exodus one eleven. Um, the the story's inclusion in three of the different supposed sources of uh, the Pentateuch J P and the E. Uh, the literary problems with, within the, the larger story that would be created if Hebrew enslavement is left out. And uh, the, the scene with a Hebrew slave from the tomb of Rechmeyer, uh, 1400 BCE, along with other uh, artifacts, uh, 
all point to the existence of Hebrews in, and in particular, of Hebrew slaves in Egypt, and of Moses as a real historical figure. Regarding Moses in the burning bush, it seems strange to me that higher critics who are so dismissive of any literal reading of a biblical text are unable to see in Moses' burning bush experience a profound spiritual encounter, a great mystical vision. I don't see it as at all reasonable to read an ecstatic vision uh, as if the author meant it to be understood literally and then turn around and dismiss it because it cannot be factually true. Uh, better, I think, to read it as what it really is, as what it literally is, a vision, an ecstatic moment of enlightenment, of encounter with God, to be pondered a whole lifetime for its significance. Regarding the ten plagues, there is a fascinating Egyptian poem written between, I think, 1850 and 1650 BCE, known as the Epur Papyrus. It is a poem describing Egypt in a time of great crisis, confusion, and multiple disasters. It parallels the ten plagues in interesting ways. For example, it describes the Nile River as turning into blood. I'm definitely not saying that this is a description of the ten plagues at the time of the Exodus. I'm only pointing out that at a time of chaos and turmoil in Egypt, um, that um, the situation is described poetically in language that sounds very much like that of the Exodus. It uses the same sort of language. It is reasonable to think then that the plagues refer to a real situation of turmoil in Egypt. In imaginative or that's described in imaginative or uh, poetic language, a, a time of crisis, advantageous to escaping slaves. Now, having said this, I think it only fair to note that conservative scholars are correct in pointing out that there is nothing mythological or particularly supernatural about the first nine plagues. They, they could all be explained within the context of natural occurrences common to the Nile. Regarding the escape through the water, every critic knows, uh, every, um, every scholar, uh, whether uh, confessing or non-confessing, knows that the English translation indicating the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, which would have indeed been a pretty fantastic feat worthy 
of the special effects used in the movie The Ten Commandments. Everyone knows it's a, that that is a mistranslation. In the original Hebrew, it does not say the Red Sea, but the reed, R-E-E-D, sea, indicating one of the swampy or wet lowlands of the Reed Sea. Under the leadership of Moses, Hebrew slaves, how many does it really matter? But we need not imagine something that looks like the evacuation of Hong Kong escaped from their forced Egyptian labor. They make for one of the swamps or wetlands of the Reed Sea. Moses knows just where uh, it could be crossed. He positions himself on a rock with his arms raised to furnish the people a reference point. At low tide and on foot, they make their way across safely. But the Egyptians, in their heavy chariots and their armor and horses, become mired in the mud and drown in the rising tide. For the Egyptians, with their military prowess, with their glorious history of victories, it is not an especially significant event. But for the Hebrew slaves, it is a glorious miracle. The great Jewish scholar and rabbi Nahum Sarna raised what I think is a, is a critical point for secular biblical scholars and soft atheists who dismiss the exodus out of hand or reduce it to a metaphor for freedom of the self-help variety. He said this, Furthermore, no explanation has been offered by those who deny the very presence of Israel in Egypt, its enslavement and escape to freedom. As, as to why it was necessary to fabricate such a tradition. How did such an inglorious, gratuitous concoction achieve such a successful transmission generation after generation and century after century? Were the Israelites so devoid of historical memory that it was possible to foist upon them a perversion of history to the extent that it became so indelibly embedded in their national consciousness, so embedded in their national consciousness as to be able to inform and reshape all national religious institutions? Is just uh, not plausible uh, to dismiss um, to dismiss the exodus as a metaphor or as unreal while and and account for the history of the Jewish people. I'm trying to keep these reflections to 20 minutes, so I need to stop here. But I will continue thinking about the historical critical method 
and the trustworthiness of Scripture in the next sex in the next uh, session.